Well, good morning. It's getting cold out there. Pretty soon we'll be the frozen chosen during the freezing season. As mentioned before, uh, Pastor Kevin is uh, returning. He's in the air right now with uh, Brian Howard, uh, returning from an Acts 29 conference in Texas, where he has joined uh, people from all over who are church planters, who have that in common with each other, and they can have fellowship with each other, lift each other up, encourage each other, learn from each other, share each other's stories, and be coached and trained and, and revitalized, and we're just so glad he's had this opportunity to do that. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Kevin began a new series called Next Steps. I'll be looking up there now and then. Uh, I'm insecure that way. Next Steps. What are the steps that we need to take if you plan to follow Jesus Christ? Well, there's a series of steps uh, that you'll see here. And the first one is the call to Christ. Call to Christ. This is the sinner's step. This is for non-believers for people who have lived their lives in rebellion or passive indifference to God who have not considered the claims of Christ in their lives before. This is the step we all must take. This is the starting step toward God. And you can't take a side step around this step because if you could, then Christ is not worthy to follow because He said, no one comes to the Father by me, but by me. We need to take this step. You need to come to Christ to receive Him as your Lord and Savior, to be saved. And all of us need to take that step. And if you haven't, take that, again, taken that step, would you consider what you are in need of to bring you to that point? The call to Christ. Now the next steps are all for believers who have taken that first step. And I'm going to start covering that second step, a call to commitment. Have you ever been watching a TV show, and in the last few minutes, this flashes on the screen? And you're shocked. I thought it was over. I thought it was complete. It's coming to an end. We can move on. But no, there's more yet to come. More to continue. You know, when you come to Christ, the grace of God saves you and you are complete in Christ. That act of grace to save you is done. It's over. It's complete. But did you know that the grace that saves you continues to flow in you? Grace that saves sinners now transforms believers. So there's much more work that God has to do in the lives of those who are saved in you and me in this church. In fact, Uh, The Bible tells us that this is the case, that God has a continuing work in our lives. We read from Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Wow, we're looking forward to a long way down the road, this great eschatological event when Christ comes in his glory. And God who began that work in you when you took that first step, when you came to Christ, is going to continue to work in you to bring you more and more into conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. He's going to make a man out of you, a woman out of you, a man of God out of you, a woman of God out of you. It's going to cause you to grow and mature and and become that person God has called you to be. That new life in Christ begins to grow in you by the Holy Spirit of God. That's God's work of grace in you. So there's a reason why we want to take this second step. 
And uh, in that next slide, it says, uh, God is constantly at work in every believer. Right now, God is at work in you. He is shaping, molding, stretching, refining, hardening, tempering you, and channeling you, and making you that person God wants you to be. Now, wouldn't it be great if we can see a model of commitment? You see a congregation that's on fire for the Lord? High-octane believers are thoroughly committed to Jesus Christ. What would that church look like? Well, I'd have to do, all I'd have to do really is show up, hold up a mirror. It's, it's you, right? But in Scripture, we do have a model that's set for us of a congregation that is committed to the things of God. Let's turn there to uh, Acts chapter 2. I've got it on the screen, verses 41 through 47. And we can read along uh, with what you see on the screen. But if you don't have a Bible, it would be good for you to have one because we're going to unpack this passage verse by verse. So if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you can raise your hand right now and an usher will come and give you a Bible so you'll be ready for what comes next. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse one, or 41, it says this. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that your spirit will speak to us. Open our hearts and minds, not just to understand, uh, but to see what our needs are and how we can grow closer to you and become more committed to the things that matter most to you. We pray that you will guide us now as we consider your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you would like to be a part of that church? We just read. Woohoo! I'm, I'm on! What an exciting place. I don't think the word boredom comes to mind when I read these passages. This is an exciting place. But it's filled with believers who are committed to God. Now how would we adequately describe or define what commitment is? If the next step is a call to commitment, well, what is that step I'm supposed to take? Well, it's... Described for us in this phrase in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. It's one Greek word. And we could say that if you are committed to Christ, if you want to take that second step, then there's a constant devotion in your heart to the work God is doing in every believer. You see, if there is constant work, then that requires constant devotion. We want to be about what God is doing. And what God is doing especially for every believer. That every believer can be a part of at one time or another. That's what we need to be devoted 
two. This is not part-time commitment. This is going to be a commitment for the long run. This is a marathon. So what are the things that we need to be committed to? I'll show you this big list. This is the checklist. At least seven things that you should consider being committed to. This is a checklist for the church. Every church needs to have this. You can take a look at their ministries. These are basic startup ministries that have maximum ministry potential to every believer. Now, as, as church grows, they can have specialized ministry to particular age groups or to particular uh, relationships, such as children's ministries, youth ministries, adult ministries, uh, marriage seminars. We can specialize, but these are commitments to what God is doing at one time or another for everybody. This is maximum ministry here. Now, the first area of commitment is this thing called baptism. Now, I'm I'm kind of borrowing from verse 41 and putting it into this passage. Because for the believers in this congregation, they took care of that step, that obligation, immediately. There was no delay. But I'm going to put it on our checklist because sometimes when we are saved today, uh, we haven't considered baptism as a genuine commitment in our lives. We, we, we may have reasons for that. We may not see why it's important or, or that there are some barriers to do that. But baptism was something every believer should consider. Baptism is not optional. When Peter stood up on Pentecost to preach the first salvation message to the Jews who were gathered there in Jerusalem and he he preached salvation to them Uh, the people were pierced to their hearts they realized the enormity of their sin they had committed the big one they had killed Christ I mean it's right up there I mean if you're going to do something bad and, and killing the son of God is probably up there I mean, you crucified the promised Messiah. And they were pierced, they were crushed. Oh, this is a disaster. We thought he was some blasphemer, a criminal. You mean to say what he was saying and doing was true? He was the, the person he claimed to be? Oh, we're in serious trouble. What do we do? And Peter responded in chapter 2 and verse 38. He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. See, it's not optional. It's, well, you, this group over here may be baptized. This group, you don't need to. Everyone needs to be baptized. When John the Baptist came to prepare the way of Christ, he was baptizing. Jesus himself was baptized. The Jews in Jerusalem were baptized. Whether it's 3,000 or it's one Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling back home, uh, he was baptized. So Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, they were all baptized. Baptism is part of the Great Commission formula. So it's not optional. But it doesn't save. It doesn't save you. 
We don't believe or teach that baptism is a sacrament. That by entering into the waters of baptism, some grace is conveyed to you and you are saved because you were baptized. No. We believe you are baptized because you're saved. So if baptism doesn't save you and it's required for everyone, why do you do it? What's the benefit? What's the purpose of baptism? Well, let me share with you three of them. First, baptism is an outward sign of an inward attitude of repentance and saving faith. As Peter said, repent and be baptized. Don't be baptized and think then you can repent. No, you repent and then you're baptized. This is not new to the Jews. When John the Baptist was going around baptizing in preparation for Christ, that was his baptism as well. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I baptize you with water for repentance. So we're baptized because we have repented of our sins. We want to go to a different direction. We recognize and acknowledge that there's sin in our lives. And that baptism is a sign that you have so come to that conclusion. It's not just repentance, but it's based upon your faith. Or in verse 41, so those who received His Word were baptized. You have to receive the Word. And it's not just hearing with your ears. It's hearing and responding with your heart. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I receive the word that is preached to me. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died and He was buried and He rose again from the, from the dead from the morning of the third day. He ascended into heaven. And by faith, I put my trust in Him. And as a sign to you that this is the decision of my heart, I enter into the waters of baptism. So baptism is that sign, that outward sign of uh, what's going on in your heart. The baptism doesn't produce that. It expresses that. Now there's another reason. Baptism is a public proclamation of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You're saying, I declare my allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. The baptism is part of the Great Commission. Where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if you decide, I'm going to be a follower of Christ. That's what a, a disciple is. He's a follower of Christ. You demonstrate that. You prove the genuineness of that by being baptized. And in that baptism, you're declaring your allegiance to Christ. You know how much commitment is required of you to do that? If we had a baptistry right here, what's the risk you take in being baptized? How committed must you be? What are the dangers? Have you ever thought about that? Baptism is dangerous. Well, you could slip as you get into the baptistry and bang your head. Or the one baptizing you might take too long raising you up from the water. That could be a problem. But can you realize how dangerous it was to be baptized in Jerusalem? Think about it for a minute. This is just 50 days after Christ was crucified. By the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, 
the scribes got together, declared Jesus as public enemy number one. They crucified him on the cross thinking he's a blasphemer and a criminal. Fifty days later, you stand up and you say, I declare I'm following him. Guess what that makes you? Are you endeared to the corrupt Jewish leadership at that moment? Are they going to embrace you and think, oh, you're baptized. Praise God. You're one of us. You're now on the hit list. That's what happened. You can't hide 3,000 people being baptized at one time in and around the temple. They're going to notice something like that. It's not happening in the basement or behind that curtain right there. I mean, it's too big. Such a movement. Everyone's going to know. You're going public. You're saying, I declare, I am following Jesus. That's dangerous. That's high risk. That takes high commitment. That's why baptism tends to weed out the genuine from the less than. Because it, there was a risk. You could be kicked out of the synagogue. You be blacklisted from buying and selling. They could hunt you down and drag you from your home and put you in prison. And if you think I'm just kidding, read Acts chapter 8. I mean, they got mad at the first spirit-filled ta- table waiter named Stephen, and they killed him. And then a great persecution. And those people who were baptized, those people who declared their allegiance to Christ were kicked out of Jerusalem. It takes a high level of commitment. For you to come forward and say, I want to be baptized. I declare my allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the third, baptism serves as a gateway into a new community of faith. When a Gentile wanted to forsake his pagan, idolatrous ways and embrace the faith of Judaism, he had to be baptized. This was not a new invention. For a Gentile to embrace the community of faith in Israel, they had to undergo baptism. Baptism was always the sign that you are now entering into a new community of faith and to be involved in that faith and to grow in that faith and to be a part of that faith. So when those Jews in Jerusalem were pierced to the heart and were saved, they received the word, they repented, they were baptized, they were saying, we want to be a part of a new community of faith. We want to grow and be a part of this that's happening. And that's what baptism is. It's not meant to be uh, thorough in this presentation. You may have other questions about baptism, about the mode of baptism, the age of baptism, and the timing of baptism, but that should be on your checklist. Now, if you are baptized, check it off. It's done. You don't have to keep doing that again. It's one time. It's done. But if you haven't been baptized, consider that. Consider that. And consider the reasons why you haven't been baptized. Are there some objections and barriers that we need to help you with to overcome that? That's the first one. The second one is that uh, they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. To the apostles' teaching. To God's Word. And we, well, we have life groups. We have five of them right now. Uh, Pastor Kevin is teaching a group uh, on Sunday, Sundays. Monday is Dan Brown. Tuesdays you get a twofer. 
Uh, uh, Steve Scott is leading a group at the Ministry Center, and Ben Rodriguez is at uh, Jennifer Sumner's house. And then uh, Wednesday night, you have Tony uh, Hilliard, and he's got a, a life group going. And there are different times and different days, and there's some babysitting offered and meals. And you, you can choose. There's, I think, a life group for every one of you. And it's difficult for me to choose. I want to go to all of them. These are great guys. This is a wonderful opportunity to grow in my relationship with God and to one another. But could you imagine what the life groups were like in Jerusalem? Sunday, the Apostle Peter will lead a life group. Monday night, the Apostle John. Tuesday, you get a twofer. You get, you get Andrew and you get Philip. Wednesday, it's Thomas. Woo! Thomas. Thursday, it's Matthias. Friday, it's um, a, a number of the other disciples all filling in. Which one would you choose? I go to every one of them. What an opportunity to sit down and be taught by one of the eyewitnesses of Christ who followed him. Wouldn't that be a great opportunity? And to all gather together and, and to hear them teach? I mean, I couldn't wait as soon as they'd open the doors. I'd be there. What kind of questions would you have to ask? I have some questions about Thomas. Why did you doubt? What was going on in your mind that you would not believe what everyone else reported? What's going on? Or Peter, oh, Peter, how did you really feel when Jesus asked you, do you love me? And who was that who reclined uh, uh, on the couch next to Jesus? Who was that? Which disciple? I got all kinds of questions. It would be great to have the apostles teaching you themselves. But here's the problem. The church outgrew and outlived the apostles. It was only a short window of time that the gathered church in Jerusalem could meet with all the apostles and to be taught by them. How then could you and I in the 21st century uh, be devoted to the apostles' teachings if the apostles are not here to teach us? How do we get the same benefit today that they had in the first century? Well, we find a clue to this in John chapter 20. It's not on the screen. But in John chapter 20, we go back to that doubting Thomas. In verse 28, who wasn't going to believe. I mean, all the other disciples said, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. We talked to him. We spoke with him. He, we're convinced he rose from the dead. And Thomas says, no, unless I do a little CSI. Right? Crime scene investigation. I, I, I want to, you know, do this. I want to check this. I want to feel this. Uh, I want to confirm that. I want to verify this. And then eight days later, Jesus comes and stands before them and, and basically he says to Thomas, go for it. Do whatever you want. Examine whatever you need. Here's my side. I'll open up the scar. Just put your hand right in. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. They convince you this is my body, which was crucified and raised from the dead. Now, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a hallucination. I'm not a filament of your imagination. I'm real. And in chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Profess his faith. That's enough. I'm convinced. I believe you. Now, Jesus said these amazing words in response to that. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, 
these are unique historical events. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven. If the church outlives the apostles, then every one of those people will have to believe not having seen. So how are they going to believe not having seen what Thomas had seen? And how are you and I going to be committed to the apostles' teaching not having the apostles? Well, as John the Apostle says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Even as the apostles were teaching, they were led by the Spirit of God to write the essentials of their faith and teachings in a book. Write it down. So that when you depart from the scene, you will leave your teaching behind in written format. And those writings are going to be shared and sent to the churches and collected and codified. And they'll be transmitted faithfully from one generation to another. We have the essential teachings of the apostles, beloved. It's right here. The decisive criteria for inclusion for the 27 books in the New Testament had to be apostolic sanction. In other words, the books that are in the New Testament had to be either written by the apostles or those closely associated with them. So although the apostles are not here with us, we have their teachings and they have been inspired by God to be complete and thorough for us. So when Ben and Steve and Tony and Dan and Pastor Kevin open the Word of God in those life groups. They are involving and engaging you in the apostles' teaching. And when you gather here on Sunday and the preacher opens the Word of God, they are teaching you what the apostles wrote almost 2,000 years ago. So we have baptism. And we have God's Word preserved for us. Now some uh, churches think, well, wouldn't it be even better, rather than having the written word of the apostles, let's just have a new group of apostles and new revelations, and we'll write more books. Wouldn't that be better? Well, that goes against what Scripture says. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, made this statement. In his little book, just before revelation he said beloved although i was very eager to write to you about our common salvation you see he he had another agenda in mind but the holy spirit says "Mm -mm, no i want you to write this i found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints you get that once for all We're not waiting for new revelations to tuck in between or add to or behind. We have it. Now what we need to do is to contend for it and to grow by it and to study it and let it penetrate our hearts and minds. So, we have God's Word. And by the way, how did those people know that these were apostles of God anyway? Did God do something a little extra for that congregation So they were convinced that the teachings of the apostles were really from God and were authoritative. Well, what did God do for these apostles? For example, um, in Jerusalem, 
in that first century, if you were a Jew, 50 days after Christ uh, was crucified, you could go listen to a Peter preach. And then you leave there and you go to the synagogue because the synagogues were still in existence. They were still teaching. And you can listen to a rabbi teach. Now Peter said, Jesus is the Son of God. And the rabbi and the son at synagogue said, Jesus is not the Son of God. He's the carpenter's son. Peter says, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And the Pharisees and the scribes are saying in the synagogue, Jesus was a criminal, a blasphemer, and that's why he was crucified. Peter is saying, you have to repent, you have to be saved by faith. And the the rabbis in the synagogues are saying, you need to be circumcised and obey the laws of Moses. Who's telling the truth? See, they're caught in transition. They have the synagogue, they have the temple, and they've got the apostles. So which one now is telling the truth? Well, what did God do for them to make it proof positive that what the apostles were preaching is from God Himself? In verse 43 of our text, in Acts chapter 2, God did provide a little something extra. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There you go. Many wonders and signs were being done through who? The apostles. God did that to confirm their message and their office. That this is authoritative. This is from God. So you have baptism and you have God's word. And they were also devoted to this thing called fellowship. The blessed koinonia. Fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. You could have a judge pardon uh, a defendant. And the two go their separate ways. It's just professional. It's not personal. There's no intent to establish an abiding relationship between the two. Is that the way of our God who provides a way to save you, but He has no intention of relating to you? He doesn't want to become intimate with you. He's too transcendent. He's too distant. You really aren't supposed to know the God who saved you. There's no relationship at all. It's just the fact that God has provided a way to justify sinners. But that's not true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into the fellowship. You see, a holy God wants to overcome the gap that keeps us separate from Him because of sin. And once that sin is dealt with judicially, that gap is bridged and God wants to fellowship with you forever. It's devoted to the fellowship. God wants us to know Him. God wants us to to, to get close to Him. It's a shared life. As much as possible. And even the apostles had that experience and wanted to share that with us. The apostle John. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Fellowship. It's not about programs. It's about people. Think of the gifts of the Spirit. What they include. Among the gift lists that you find in Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter and Ephesians, 
Those gifts include the gift of mercy. The gift of giving. The gift of serving. The gift of helps. The gift of encouragement. God wants people in His body who care for each other. They're merciful. They're compassionate. They're giving. They want to help. They want to serve. Can you imagine a fellowship where you have a congregation that thrives on that? On showing mercy and compassion and giving to those who are in need. That's what fellowship is all about. Can you put an X next to that? Can I? I have to confess to you, maybe. I can check off baptism, and I think I can check off God's Word, uh, but fellowship. I'm so task-oriented, sometimes I forget to share my life with you. Or to ask you, how are things going in your life? I remember going to the Union Gospel Mission with my missions class. We had a program. We had a task that had to be done. We were running behind. We wanted to clean their windows, I think. (laughs) Cleaning windows. And I walked through the chapel at the back of the Union Gospel Mission. I passed a dozen guys. I didn't even look at them. I didn't even acknowledge them. I didn't say hi to anybody. didn't shake anybody's hand because we had a job to do. We had to clean their windows. When we cleaned the windows, we went right back through the chapel. I passed all those guys again, and I got in my car, came back to the school, and I thought, well, we, we did what we were supposed to do. We cleaned the windows, and then I was convicted. But who did you talk to? Who did you talk to? You were there not for windows. You were there for people, and they were right there. All you had to do is say, hi, how are you doing? Setting up the nursery I don't know why I set up the nursery. It's, just, I, it's easy for me. It's non-technical. <laughs> I don't think they let me in here to do this. You'd have problems. Okay? I think even the city would arrest me. But uh, I'm setting up in the nursery. Danny, blessed Danny, is taking the projector upstairs. We usually pass each other about that time. And I, I think it was a couple weeks ago, I said, Danny, how has your week been? Remember that, Danny? Remember what you told me? Said my mom died. My mom died. He shared his life with me. And I just stopped, put my arms around him, and I said, I'm sorry. That's fellowship. That's union and communion. That's about people. That's what they were committed to. Same day, I, I asked Harvey Hess, how was your week, Harvey? He said, well, it was ups and downs. I had to do something new that I've never done before. I found out he had to rebuild an engine for a semi. My great mechanical achievement is to have my oil changed by somebody named Henry. Build an engine for a semi? What a huge risk of failure and cost and time and energy. And he hadn't done that before. That was his week. You know, there are people who come in here, they're discouraged. 
they're hoping that someone will encourage them. It's called fellowship. We have a brother right now who's been hurting. Mike, he's hurting. And if the fellowship is what we believe it is, we're going to rise up and we're going to do something, some things for him. And in practical ways as well. But we're here to encourage one another. And in fact, the author of Hebrews was concerned that some people had missed sight of that. And we're starting not to come together and miss the benefit of fellowship. Hebrews 10, 25, Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging one another. That's what fellowship is all about. Committed to baptism, God's word, fellowship, and communion. It said to the breaking of the bread. I'm sure it included a meal, but communion is where you and I as believers have an opportunity to to gather around the elements that Jesus set aside and gave special meaning to the bread and to the cup. And Paul explained why we do that. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do we gather around communion? It's because we want to remember. Don't forget Jesus. 2,000 years ago, took upon himself a body, and that body was broken open on a cross for you. Don't forget that. Remember that. Observe that together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We can't go to the cemetery where Jesus is buried, can we? Can't go to the tomb. You can open it up. You're not being ghoulish. No problem, there's nobody there. It's empty. We can't gather around his uh, headstone and remember and reflect upon this person and who he was. We don't have that opportunity. So instead, as we gather around communion, we are doing essentially that we remember him. And what He has done for us. And Paul also said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. See, communion is an act of remembrance and it is a public proclamation of His death. We are all sinners. The wages of sin is death. Christ died on the cross for our sins. We proclaim it. We embrace it. We honor it, and we won't forget until the day it comes. Until then, we have the bread, we have the cup. When he comes, we'll put that away. We won't need it anymore. Here he is. But until that day, we have communion where we remember, we proclaim, and we enter into union with one another. We draw closer to each other, for we're all sinners. Christ died for all of us. It is that common expression of faith in the act of taking communion. So we have these things on our checklist. Baptism, God's Word, fellowship, communion, and to the prayer.
If I ever find committed believers, I know what I'm going to find. Praying believers. Prayer. If you're a committed believer, you're going to be praying. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 uses the same Greek word where Paul said to the believers at Colossae in uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. He said, continue steadfastly in prayer. That's the same Greek word. Continue steadfastly in prayer. In Acts chapter 1, 14, before the day of Pentecost, we find the same Greek word and the same action related to that in Acts 1, 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves, same Greek word, devoting themselves to prayer. It's amazing what happens when you pray. All of them prayed in the upper room just before Pentecost. Then when Pentecost struck, the Holy Spirit filled them with the Holy Spirit. And who went out speaking in tongues the message of Jesus Christ? Who? All of them. Everyone prayed. Everyone was filled. Everyone spoke. You see, corporate prayer brings corporate results. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter reported to the congregation of believers what happened when he stood before the Sanhedrin to testify concerning his faith, and the believers all prayed that the apostles might have boldness to speak forth the Word of God, even in the midst of great growing threats, it says they were all filled and all spoke the Word boldly. Corporate prayer brings corporate results. Your private prayer can also bring personal results. Are you committed to prayer? I've learned the hard way. We don't pray for missions. We don't pray for the church. We don't pray for the work of missions or the work of the church. Prayer is the work of the church. It is the work of missions. And they were committed to doing just that, to pray. Might be the endangered species today in the church. Prayer. Corporate prayer. We used to have prayer nights. All you did is come to pray. I remember having a prayer session at Cannon Beach with all the pastors throughout the Yakima Valley. You think we were able to pray? Not a chance. There was no preaching, no sermon, no conferences, no teaching. You were there just to pray. We were in an upper room and we misfunctioned. No wonder you guys can't pray. We didn't either. We gave preachimonies. We were praying and we were preaching. And finally, we realized we weren't praying as we should. We're pastors, for goodness sake. If anybody could gather together and pray the roof off of something, we should be able to do it. And we fell flat on our faces. The whole morning we were up there. It was like it was a struggle fest. Come on, somebody pray. Come on. And nobody was praying. And we knew it. Oh, we were saying words, but it wasn't connecting. And we ate lunch, and everyone was down, and it wasn't being very successful. And we went back up there again and started the same same road, the same vein. And then finally, a pastor picked up his chair, walked in the middle of the group, set it down. And he said, gentlemen, I've been the pastor of this church for 18 years. And I was just fired. And he started crying. Pastors got up, gathered around him. We started to pray. And he was wise when we were done. He got up and he left. And he left his chair sitting there. 
one after another of us got up and we took our place in that chair and we shared our hearts. And boy, did we pray! Oh my goodness. I even had a seat on the hot seat and I shared what was going on in my life. And they prayed. I mean, we're here to pray, beloved. We're not here to play at it, we're here to pray. And I'm sure that they did. Committed to prayer. Also, they were committed to the needy. In Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is not Christian socialism. We're not here to create a welfare state, but we are concerned about the welfare and the state of your your, your heart and your life. Why do we meet people's needs? Because that's what love is. Love always responds to meet the needs that people have. See, we needed to be forgiven. And if God had the wherewithal to provide that forgiveness, if He really loved us, He would do something about it. And He did. He saw our need. He met the need. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. That's called love. That's what love does. It sees a need, and out of the resources that we have, we seek to meet that need. Apostle John warned about speaking about love and not doing anything about it. He said in 1 John, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. These people were not talking the talk. They were walking the walk. If you had a need and someone had a piece of property and could sell that property and bring the proceeds to the church and have it distributed to meet those needs, they would gladly do that. They were not under compulsion. This was a volunteer system and they still had personal property. No one told them you have to give up everything private and make it a common purse. But when you see needs, we can help meet those needs. That's called love. This is a loving church. We read about that. Meeting the needs. The needy. And it's a congregation that's committed to evangelism. Next, chapter 2. They were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who were being saved day by day. Oh, 3,000 is enough, Lord. We don't need any more. We can't handle them anyway. It's just our little group. That's a lot of people, 3,000. They have a lot of fellowship and a lot of prayer. But if you set and you model commitment, you will make that attractive to the people to those outside the church. They will look at your compassion. They will look at your dedication. They will see your devotion. They will see your love. And they will want to be a part of this. We want to create a model of commitment that is appealing to Yakima. They want to come. They see what's going on. And that's something that they're missing. That's something that they're needing. You know, the second step of commitment opens the first step even further. Commitment leads to more conversion. You know, if there's a church that that people aren't coming to Christ, 
It's not the first step you have to check in the the church. It's the second step. Because if you're not a committed church, how can you be a saving church? The two go together. If you lose your commitment, you'll lose your message. Because the people will see through it. If we become just judgmental, we become ingrown, and we become hardened in our hearts, and we forsake the, the Word of God for some social gospel, that'll percolate out. And it'll be much harder to, to introduce Christ to the lost. But they didn't have a problem. They had favor with all the people. They knew what was going on. And they continued to grow every single day. People who were being saved. You see, this is a commitment to evangelism. By you taking that step, you do much for others to take the first step. Now, Some of you might be thinking, commitment's a big word. We have a real hard time with commitment. You make it sound like it's a sweatshop. Look at all those things you got to do. Oh my goodness. You're just going to overwhelm us with work and obligations and duties. We might as well just give it all up and pitch our tents inside the church because we're not going to be leaving. Looks like this is going to demand everything that you've got. Turn over your wallets. We're going to take everything from you. Is this something the people in Jerusalem felt they had to do? Did Peter say, okay, now I'm breaking out the whip and I'm going to hit you with these. You have to do these. No, it says... They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were glad to do this. They wanted to do this. I think that they couldn't open the doors enough. They're probably standing out in front saying, when are you going to open up? We want to be taught. We want to give. We want this fellowship. This is what we've been dying for. And you've got it. We want it. Let's be a part of it. Let's go. This is not something you have to do. Something that you need to come to the point where this is what I want to do. So how do we bring this to an end? Well, what did you check off? I can check off most of these. I need to do better with fellowship. I need to do better with the needy. How can I be uh, more responsive to the needs of people around me? I think I need to do better at that. But what about you? Where are you on this checklist? See, taking the second step of commitment is really a matter of the heart. Maybe you can recall back when there was a time when you were on fire for the Lord. You really wanted to do these things. You wanted to do what really mattered to God, but life happened. Life got in the way. And that fire has died down. And you don't know what happened. That commitment has been fading away. And you know it. Maybe this is the time for you to recommit your life to the things that God is doing. I'm not asking you to commit 
to a program. I'm asking you to consider your desire for God. Isn't this the time when we're going to consider taking this step that you have to decide, I want what I used to have. I want the fire. I need to kindle that flame. I need God. I want these things. That's where we need to start. You inside your heart. Forget the checklist for a moment and just think of where your heart is. Are you been distant from God? Have you walked away from the Lord? Have you been going a different path? Have you been pursuing different interests? Have you been the casual visitor now? You've been saved for a long time, but it's become stale. It's grown old and cold, and you're indifferent, and now you realize, this is where I am. I'm in a rut. I need to commit myself to Jesus Christ anew. Maybe that's where you're at. This morning as the praise team comes up to lead us in in the closing songs, I want you to think about that. Where is your commitment to Christ? Where is it? What do you want Christ to do for you today? If you would like to recommit your life to Jesus Christ, maybe it's just a matter of sitting there as, as the the worship team sings or standing there and in between you and God say, oh God, I'm sorry, no excuses. I don't know what happened, but I have not been committed to you. And I want to. And recommit your life to Christ where you're standing. If you would like to come forward as an expression of that recommitment and just come forward in the front pews and just express that to God, just do that. Who cares what other people are thinking? This is the time. This is the place. We are the people. And God is here. Let's do business with the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You make it possible to take any steps at all. For we are, if we were just deserving of who we are and what we should get, we should all perish. But you have loved us, you saw our need, you provided for the need by sending your son Jesus Christ so that we can by faith take that first step. And now, Lord, here we are. There are many of us who believe. Lord, look at our hearts. Where are we? What are we doing? What are we so caught up in? Oh, God, would you please speak to our hearts now? Because we do want to take this step. Oh Lord, may we feel again the fire burning within us. Speak to our hearts that we might respond to you in faith. Oh Father, maybe this is the day where those who for years have just walked away will come back to you. Will rededicate their lives to you. Will seek what matters to you in their own lives. This will be a day of reckoning, Lord. Lord, have your way in us. Have your way in me. Help me to, to be more people-oriented and not tasks. Help me to see more needs and be able to reach out and meet those needs as you have provided. 
May we be a congregation of men and women who are committed to you. For this we pray in Jesus' name.